Hey, Dame. What's good? You know, I was curious. We've been home for a minute now recording remotely. And, you know, I just feel like I've had so much more time on my hands. I've been listening to more music, watching more shows, engaging with more podcasts. And I was curious, have you listened to any podcasts recently? Nope. Still no. I, I make this and I watch things and I love all you podcast listeners because you make this work possible. <laughs> but all you other podcasters, don't ask me. I have not heard your podcast. I'm really sorry. It is no hard feelings. I don't listen to my own. <laughs> if you were... If I were to listen though, to a podcast, I know where I would go. Where would you go? I'm going to check out Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Yeah, I love independence. I love free things. This sounds like where I'm going to have to go uh, step into this game of podcast listening. Podcast for the people. Get it for free on the App Store. Education. Hello. Hey. This is Ergo. I agree. That is what this is. I'm Kiss. I am Damon. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our cities and world for the more equitable and creative. How are you doing, Damon? I'm excited. I'm 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 happy. This is this is one of those. This is one of those home team favorites. This is for the listeners. This is for the fans. <laughs> we dedicate this one to you. <laughs> it's, it would be possible without you. Um, no, I'm I'm really excited. It, it, you know, in this climate of us being in all of this crisis, it's allowed us a lot of space to start thinking about the world in larger and grander ways. And we're doing that with education in this suite. Um, and, you know, who we have on, Mr. David Stovall really embodies a radical approach to education and schooling. Uh, and so, you know, folks may remember our, our episode with him a few years back. That's been one that I've gotten a lot of response to. And so I'm really, really excited in this time uh, to be able to go further with David Stovall. And he, he brought some amazing things as to be expected, uplifting the, the relationship between mutual aid and solidarity economy and what education needs to be. So definitely want to uplift uh, the people's grab and go uh, as an amazing example of responding to crisis and using the school site, Burke Elementary School, as a drop-off site for mutual aid. Um, and he really, you know, I think went further in the notion of what fugitivity needs to look like for the radical educator that wants to build more liberatory spaces. Dave Stovall is a professor of African-American studies and criminology, law, and justice at UIC here in Chicago. His scholarship investigates critical race theory, the relationship between housing and education, and the intersection of race, place, and school. He is a member of the design team for the Greater Lawndale Little Village School for Social Justice, which opened 15 years ago. He is involved in the people's education movement as well as other community organizing that happens around the city and really just like amazing mentorship and teaching uh, about how do we move from schooling to education and make learning a part of our radical praxis. So shout out to Dave for coming through and talking with us yet again. Uh, really a wonderful conversation. Uh, make sure that you listen to all the episodes in this suite. Last week, we shared audio from inside the classroom in 2019 with the students at Uplift High School. If you hadn't listened to that, I strongly recommend it. And uh, we're going to keep this suite going for the next few weeks. But today, let's get into it with the one and only Dr. Dave Stovall. Let's get it.
We are right now deep in the midst of our education suite, uh, talking with folks who are reimagining what learning, education, schooling can look like in this context and into our future. And we have a very, very special guest on the line with us today. He's a professor at UIC. He's the person who has probably challenged and pushed my thinking around education more than almost anybody. Yeah, so excited to have him back on the show. Dave Stovall is here. Thank you. Appreciate appreciate y'all. Do you seem like a good person to ask this question too? Before we get into the the nitty gritty, if you could have any animal noise be your walk up music, what animal would you choose? Man, there is a bird that uh, has a, I don't even know the name of the bird, but when I would go up to Wisconsin back in the day, I would always, it would go. It was so funny to me because it was like on a block hearing a security call, like like that. So that was, I was like, man, like somebody does that in nature, right? So (laughs) that was, that's great. That was to me, that was like putting those two sounds together as a, as a young person was always heavy to me. And honestly, if you're going to have one animal be a lookout, you want a bird. <laughs> right, exactly. That's ideal. With flight, yeah, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah, you got flight. Exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. Right. Well, well, to continue to ground ourselves, uh, you know, we have a, a ritual of a two-part question. And in this time, and this is quite a time, uh, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Yeah, I mean, I think the world is reminding me that this moment of reckoning is just putting us in a space that we've known for some time, but we've just gotten to the space of ignoring it, mm. right? So the world is the world is saying, look, you can't poison me and not expect me to bang back. You can't do things to other folks on the planet and not expect a response. I feel like the world is reminding me of that in this moment in mm. particular. And I think uh, how am I treating the world? Yeah, it's really around paying attention to uh, exercise, environment, schools, our conversation uh, today, and just really thinking more about mutual aid, right? So what does it actually mean to do the work in solidarity? Something that I, as soon as COVID hit and when we started to see these moments of racial unrest, I started seeing people use the word solidarity economies. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really important to engage. And Damon, some of your work with Let Us Breathe is just really, I think, amped up in something that folks like yourself have been reminding us. And now it's kicked up into a whole different stratosphere. So those are the things in terms of how the world is treating me and then how I see myself as treating the world. The same way that you were talking about Dame's work, you know, sticking out and the work of Let Us Breathe being on your mind. You know, one of the things that we've observed through this whole crisis is that the people who were engaging with these ideas and doing this work around what a more equitable and liberatory future could look like before this crisis are the people who they might not have all the answers, but they're at least uh, in a good position to guide the conversation uh, now that, you know, these twin and triplet crises are descending at once. Um, and, And I think of you so clearly in that role, you know, as someone who is challenging and questioning and, and pushing people to reimagine what education can look like outside of the context or in contrast to the context of schooling. I, I think just first off, what's an idea that you were talking to people 
about two, three, five years ago that nobody was trying to hear that all of a sudden you've seen open up a little bit? Man, the idea of school abolition. Like I had a, I had a group of parents tell me once, they were like, child, have you lost your mind? Right. And, I'm, and I, my response to them was, well, look, I'm not talking about the physicality of schools as much as I'm talking about what schools represent and the ideology around what's supposed to happen in schools. Right. So the question is always, can education happen in these places that we call school? Right. So I think now, like I've, I've been getting uh, hit up uh, all summer, you know, to talk about this in particular ways. And then, you know, I'm, I work with Bettina Love with the uh, Abolitionist Teaching Network. And so, you know, that thing has just like exploded. But this idea, like three or five years ago, people were like when the article came out, people were just like, what? And all I was putting together was prison abolition and then just applying that to school because the logics of both places are the same. And I think that's something that people know in their hearts, but it's rare that we put it together and say, when we look at prisons and then we look at some schools, not all schools, but some schools, especially schools that are supposed to be serving black and brown communities, these spaces really become the same thing, right? So no longer a school prison pipeline, but school prison nexus in terms of the ideology, the material spaces are identical, right? All the way you know, to the lines down the hallway, to no soap in the bathroom, no doors in restrooms, you know, so all of these things. So I think that that idea now has come to fruition in terms of people saying, oh, this this may make some sense now. Yeah. And an important concept, I think, for folks who may still be struggling to get there uh, that really helped me understand this conversation is, is the notion of carcerality. Um, and I think as we say, like, divest from prisons and invest into education and healthcare, you know, I think one of the like emerging tensions or contradictions or dialectics is starting to understand that carcerality exists beyond these militarized spaces, right? Like there's carceral militarism, which I think is at the forefront right now, but carcerality happens institutionally throughout our, our society, but also like communally and interpersonally in ways that aren't instituted. And I think the school as a space, not only that, like, you know, there's those basic things of like Airmark makes the food or like line up or, mm -hmm. you know, these noise mm -hmm. level things. But I think at large, I think one of the things that I had to understand to get towards we need to ab abolish the way this institution is is running is noticing that the primary goal is about confinement. Uh, it's about confinement mm -hmm. and control, or at least in spaces like Chicago public schools, right? <laughs> like there are places of yep, privilege yep. where it is not as confining. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think overall, even good schools uh, have this carceral way of, of we think about like socializing people like a, a, in any strata. Mm -hmm. So that that is really important. Um, but I want to get into like how the conversation is changing this summer because mm -hmm. uh, I remember when I first heard you say it and it just tickled my radical imagination. And like <laughs> I instantly, I think we were at a UIC conference <laughs> and I'm like, bet money, this is my guy and i'm for that uh but similar to most of these things it's like okay that helps my thinking but i don't expect mm -hmm. other people or society to be moving on this in any type of like relative fashion uh particularly because schools is just such a big avalanche of activity right like the, the calendar is set 
people got jobs, people need childcare, right? Like trying to have this radical conversation during the day to day didn't seem possible. But then the buildings in which we can find students closed down <laughs> because of our crisis. And so, and so now the idea of what schooling and education look like was shattered, right? Like you start seeing questions about, oh, we can't assign homework because everybody doesn't have the same access to internet. However, we were assigning homework on the internet before <laughs> and like people were expected to do this research with this inequitable access to resource. So I say all that to come mm -hmm. back to the question of now that we have this expanded notion of carcerality compounded with this crisis of the buildings aren't open in many places, how has the conversation or the understanding changed? And it's more than just radical imagination and actually revisioning how we shape education in the short term. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that comes up exactly to you all's point where there's certain things that you can't even do now, right? They're, they're trying to do some things in some absurd ways. I mean, I don't know if you all have seen this stuff where they're trying to kick young folks out of class, right? <laughs> they're trying to kick young folks out of class on the net. And I'm saying, the fuck is wrong with y'all? Like, what are, what are you doing? Right? Like, what, what's, what conceptually are you thinking about there? Right? <laughs> but the I think the thing that becomes important back to your question is now that you no longer have this access to these buildings, there's been this shift. Right. And school systems, like I said, are no part of anybody's radical imaginary. But we've seen this shift in capitalism. Right. So now if you look at commercials, everybody got on masks, everybody's talking, you know, in all these different ways. Well, school is actually has also made this shift. And in very interesting ways, right? So when the University of California system got rid of all standardized testing as part of the admission requirement, that actually was something that was put forward by school abolitionists, right? So Michael Dumas, whose work I used to write the piece on school abolition, you know, he wrote this piece talking about school as a site of Black suffering, where the places that are designed literally, carcerally, materially, ideologically, around people's suffering, right? So school becomes this thing that you suffer through, right? It doesn't give you an education to the extent that you're supposed to suffer through this thing and now say that you're a better person because you suffered through your own dehumanization. So school districts have had to make a pivot on this and say, well, look, we can't even administer these things. So now we got to ask a question around should they exist in the first place? Right. And I think that to me is the largest shift that I've seen, this pivot that people have made. And then the other part, to your earlier point, around access. Right. So now folks are saying, I mean, and you've seen some absurd stuff. So I got family in Philly and they were activating hotspots in library parking lots. Right. And the rationale was this was supposed to get folks better access. And I'm saying to myself, this moment is now pressing us to really understand what poverty is and then what late stage capitalism is. And the, and the reason why I put those things together, because I think you all alluded to it earlier, we're in three pandemics. Right. The pandemic of covid, the pandemic of white supremacy and the pandemic of capitalism. Right. And, and when we have a conversation about that. I think we're clearer as to terms of now we're seeing bluntly in full frontal view what people have been egging us to pay attention to in terms of lack of resources, the ability to actualize those resources if we do have access 
to them and then really seeing school systems pivot right and saying well this standardized testing is impossible and now do we have we ever needed it in the first place yeah it turns it turns out our kids are still here even without a test right exactly <laughs> young bloods are still here right no, no no one has died because they haven't been able to take a standardized <laughs> test right that's so, not mean, why that, the skies are red like that's just exactly. not a one to one <laughs> don't tell i said that right exactly and the other thing that's really interesting is that we're seeing testing companies go go with this, right? So this is this is really trippy. So this is like the educational testing service, American College Testing, College Board, right? Who essentially control 90% of testing for college admissions. And then an organization, a multinational conglomerate like Pearson that controls the majority of the K-12 stuff. They've been trying to figure out stuff, but district have been like, no, we don't, there's no way for us to administer this. And, you know, in retrospect, we don't need it in the first place. So I think those, those initial pivots have been huge and very unexpected. Mm. So you name that as a pivot that you've seen happen. Let's be optimists for like three minutes of our hour long conversation. Um, what are some pivots that you hope happen? Cause you know, we know that like the impact of this year, even let's say a vaccines here in nine months or something, the economic implications, the global implications, the ripple effects of that are going to be fundamentally continuing to shift how we live our lives. What are some pivots that you hope or you could see as like potential energy right now in the same way that like the world rendered standardized testing obsolete? What else are you hoping it renders obsolete? And what are you worried that it could render obsolete that we actually need? Yeah, I think something that it could render obsolete is this idea of policing in schools, right? So I just just heard this morning, you know, there are 10 large cities that have gotten rid of police in school full force, right? So I think that is something that is critically important. I also think with standardized testing, our earlier conversation, that's something that can be also rendered obsolete. The worry that I have is that this kind of virtual age will make the idea of any type of instruction more virtual for the folks who have historically had the least. Right. So that 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 to me is a is a deep concern because we've already seen that. Right. So this this was happening as early as the late 90s, where black and brown youth who were involved in the criminal legal system were given kind of these online classes that were just for shit. I mean, they were terrible. Right. But this was pushed off as viable education. And even though I think the pushback given with all of the uh, morass of what's been happening in terms of schooling under COVID, I think there's still this push around really shifting school systems and trying to eliminate teaching, right? Mm. So this, and it's a little further down the road, but I think about this is something that the old Marxists were arguing in the early 60s and what they referred to as the rise of the machines, mm -hmm. right? And now I feel like, you know, they're no longer talking sci-fi, right? This is real time. Right. So I think those are some things that I'm hopeful about. 
the end of standardized testing, police out of schools. I'm concerned about this idea of replacing teachers yeah. under the guise of opportunity of choice, right? So those are those are real con- real concerns that I have. And when you place that in the context of automation across the economy as a whole, like that's just one more space where that's the move, right? Is and, and exactly. to, to the Marxist point, like separating the labor even even further to the point that it's obsolete again yeah no i I hadn't thought about education as an automation space Mm -hmm. i told you we were only going to be optimistic for like three minutes (laughs) yeah so i mean (laughs) what what keeps coming up i think you know in in our previous conversation in the years since and just trying to like always transform my thinking to allow for more healthy and holistic visions of the way the world should be. One of the things that I think you just named in that answer is that there is this this tension between education and schooling. Um, and we used to use these words as synonymous and did not understand that in many ways, I'm starting to see them more and more as opposites, right? Like schooling as this place of confinement and control exactly. and authoritative socialization uh, and education as a, a liberatory tool of socialization that provides agency and creativity and, and mobility to human beings, right? Uh, and so I hear, I hear you as saying a fear like schools may get more emboldened in this virtual world and that there is actually more leverage to attack educators and teaching and teachers. And so I want to go back to even like base level definition now that like that distinction is becoming more and more pronounced for me in the same way that like opposing prisons and punishment made me then think of a a radical notion of accountability rooted in community. Opposing schools is now Mm -hmm. making me think of what education looks like radically. Um, And so I think we've had to redefine accountability. I feel like the same thing needs to be said for education. And so just for you, I know that's something you're always questioning and asking, just like your base level radical understanding of what education is and should be. The thing that comes into play with that in terms of positioning schooling and education, and I'll just give this brief thing around school, right? So school is broadly this order and compliance that results in a sorting system that says that you have completed the uh, terms and conditions of this agreement. And in the agreement, you are only judged on your capacity to demonstrate your proximity to whiteness, right? So school is the regurgitation of the rules of whiteness. Education is the refutation of that, right? It is refusing that. And saying, well, what does it actually mean to engage in processes and understanding that allow you and those like you to change your condition? Mm. Most of our education doesn't even happen in school. Mm. What are the processes that we engage that allow us to work with others to change our condition, right? Materially, ideologically, socially, right? So what does it mean to engage in that practice where schooling just says that here's these sets of rules and compliances, they may or may not be connected to you. And we actually hope in our hope of hopes that you reject the majority of them, right? So what I would tell my high schoolers all the time was social studies was intended to bore you, right? One, it was intended to bore you because we're lying. (laughs) And then two, it's intended to bore you with the hope that you would reject it and not pay attention to the things that are actually dehumanizing you. These radical teachers are saying, look, I am much more intentional about your education. I could give a shit about school. 
Yeah. Right. That just happens to be the place where this thing is happening. But what I'm most concerned about is that there is a world that is operating to not only distract you, but to anesthetize you with the hope that some of you all will die being clear about that and not so much pessimistic, but saying, okay, if we understand this to exist, then what is our intentional interruption? Mm. That's what allows me to keep the concepts clear because a lot of times we still think about them as synonymous entities. But for me, it's really around saying like what historical lessons allow us to see education from a different space. Like there's this excellent book by Vanessa Siddle Walker called The Lost Education of Horace Tate. And it's about these black women teachers who actually contacted the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and said, look, we are not trying to sit next to white kids as part of our liberation condition. What we want is full accountability for the taxes that we've already paid And we want a curriculum that's reflective of what it is that we're trying to do in our classrooms. So these black women do this thing and they start exchanging curriculum with each other through the mail. (laughs) Right. So I'm just like, your your incredulity at the mail is really. (laughs) Man, yo, I mean, like, what? (laughs) Like this, this thing, like you was like, oh, they just like, look. Look, this is how we. This is how we about to get down. Okay, look, this is what. You, what are you doing in class? Here's what I'm doing in class. Here's what I'm doing in class. Right, and this, this goes throughout the southern seaboard. Right, those are efforts around education and are much more oppositional to the dehumanization of traditional school. Right, and I think it's important to kind of put those monikers on it. Yeah. So in that distinction, one of the things that we were talking with Eve at the beginning of the series, she pointed out was similar to what you were saying about automation. The The digital space for students right now is no longer, like a computer is not a luxury item. That's a, you know, in many ways, as close as schooling can get to those carceral conditions, right? You're regimented, you're still, you're in front of the screen, you're punished if you're not. Whereas for the people who have, uh, you know, to, to be a little glib about it, privilege, but really what it is is access to education rather than schooling. Mm-hmm. This is actually a time for many of them of opening up the world, right, of the constraints of schooling that because we had ideas of universal education, everyone sat in a classroom, even if that classroom functioned differently. When that falls apart, all of a sudden, these kids can can go out in, you know, in the woods or can be on field trips with their parents or can have a private tutor what happens when you have that kind of schism and there isn't this idea of we're all in this together, even though there was such wide disparity is that, or or Eve's worry. And I'm curious what you think about this is that the parents and the families of the kids who have that access to education will be even less concerned about whether the kids in that regimented format get education or not, because they don't see it as together. Um, One, does that ring true? And and two, you know, what what do you see as if you have any like potential pathways to, to bridge that divide a little bit? Right. This is really kind of the function of late stage capitalism. Right. So this is really this idea of the function of diminishing resources. You have to hoard all these things. Mm-hmm. And now saying if you get these things, there's no more altruistic worry, right? There's this thing around, so I've gotten mine, so now let me just go ahead and continue. And I think 
the thing that can interrupt that is really our understanding of the environment. And this is what I mean by that. The two things you can't replace is air and water, right? (laughs) These are the things that no matter what, you cannot replace. You can't make more of it, right? And you can actually harm it, right? So I think this thing around really seeing that in real time, and I think California, Oregon, and Washington is putting this into play, right? So for folks saying like, no, this is really hitting all of us, right? Even though Elon Musk is trying to shoot these civilian missions into the sky, right? That's not going to work for the whole of us. And I think there's a heavy tension there, right? Because in that tension, the haves have hunkered down and have made sure to secure those particular resources and haven't really thought about those who have never really had those resources. But I think the bridge in that is thinking about the environment and then what does it mean to have everyone participate in addressing this issue, right? Because, you know, the climate change folks, I mean, they're saying it's like, you know, it's like this inside doomsday uh, clock. They're saying, you know, the one group of folks are saying like, look, you got 10 years left. Now I think it's down to nine. It's like you, after that, it's irreversible, right? So this this thing around really putting that into context, but I think that's a bridge, but I, I am deeply concerned that folks have started to hunker down and just secure those resources and then being duped by this kind of politic of fear, right? So like if you think about the opening of the Republican convention where the husband and wife who were holding guns on a protest march And their rationale, and I think this is the thing to how to understand racism and white supremacy in the United States. When they say stuff like they want your suburbs, they're going to bring low income housing here. No, these are all racial dog whistles, right? This is the thing that's like, oh, shit, they're really coming. Look, they just marched through our private street. Thinking about them stoking that fear really becomes important at this moment, not just because of election time, but literally because the idea of the resources have been so diminished, right? So, you know, you're seeing all these calls, you know, about the second coming of the flu or stocking up on all of these spaces. You know, you go to Costco and your paper towels are out and everybody's like, what the, like, what just happened here? But I connect that to education because education now being deemed a resource Mm, and commodified yeah, and heavily commodified and people now thinking about what is the hoarding of that resource at the detriment of folks who have historically not had, but also there's a ray of hope in this because what I'm seeing folks do is actually begin to return to more what used to be referred to as land-based education, Mm. right? So people really saying to themselves, okay, what are we understanding about our current moment, what's happened here, and the history of how we got to this moment, right? And then now looking at ways to shift. Mm. It's it's so important and valuable the way you repeatedly highlight capitalism in discussing education, because I think that's something that we 
we don't do as consciously. I think it's easy in the healthcare system to talk about how capitalism is creating these destructive norms and outcomes. Uh, but one of, one of the things I hear or that I'm interested in is also how capitalism separates people through age uh, and how education has become this very linear age-based thing. One of the things I, I started to think about or realize, and I think it was very clear during pandemic, is that School, as we are saying, is not primarily to educate people. School is a response to the fact that we expect people from 21 to 65 to be laboring for capitalist institutions. And those are usually the people who have children and those children need to go somewhere during the eight hour workday. Um, and so that means two things, right? That we then have this like confinement based childcare system that is miseducating a lot of people. But it also means that air quote adults aren't getting educated either, right? Like the idea that my learning stops at 20, 21, if I'm, you know, in the middle, 17 to 16, if I'm, you know, experiencing poverty or maybe 25 to 26, if I'm, you know, in an elite space. Uh, But like from that point on, that's all the learning I do. And then there's work. Um, And so one of the things that I feel is needed is like education needs to get off this, like I'm eight and then I'm nine and then I'm 13 and then I'm 16. And that's how we organize ourselves. Uh, But that also that my parents don't learn and that school stops at three o'clock. And I want to get into the university a little bit, but I think just like starting with the idea of like communal based education institutions are only designed for like the developing body. In your thinking, how do we break some of that generational divide or make education more intergenerational for this land-based communal learning that we really need to be healthy? Well, we actually have real examples of this in Brazil, right? So if you go to... It's always South America. So it's, it's, always, it's always South America, right? <laughs> so if you go to uh, Porto Alegre, they have this system of what they refer to as citizenship schools. Mm. Uh, probably about 10, 12 years ago, this guy came to UIC. His name is Ivan de Martin Martins. And he was part of the citizenship school. The citizenship school goes on the model of Paulo Freire in terms of talking about a education that is deve- that is centered in consciousness development, right? Or the, the raising of consciousness, right? And this idea of to raise conscious now allows folks to change conditions, right? And Paulo Freire, when he first engaged in this with adult education and the point that people often miss mm. in K-12 education, Paulo Freire's work was originally with adults, right? So Paulo Freire teaches campesino farmers how to read, right? Up in uh, Recife, which is in one of the uh, blackest parts of Brazil in terms of African descended people. So he teaches these farmers how to read and then the farmers end up taking over the farm and kicking the owners out, <laughs> right? So Freddie actually is exiled and goes to England because the Brazilian government was looking for him after he, because they, they pegged him as the genesis of the revolt. So these citizenship schools use this model and they say, well, look, learning never stops. So Yvonne, two of my colleagues, toured him around Chicago public schools and he was freaked out. He was like, what is this thing that you all are doing called grades? Like first grade to him, he was like, what is that? Like he, he was like, what is happening? That's how he I like, felt in first grade. I mean, he was like, what? Look, look I, myself included, right? Because I was a kindergarten like, suspendee, right? What is this thing that y'all are doing? Right, like what, what are y'all doing, right? I would like to and talk he, to a manager, please. <laughs> this shit right, 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 exactly, exactly. Look, look, he was like, man, don't y'all know that that goes, and, he, and this is what he said. He said, 
He said the U.S. system of dividing people into these age grade spaces, he says that is counterintuitive to everything we know about the function of the human brain. Mm. Right. And I was just like, damn. But it goes back to your point around preparing people to work. Right. So as young as kindergarten, you're in this space, right? You do your show and tell around what it is that you want to be, but it's really around how will you best participate? How do you see yourself participating in global capital? Right. So this idea. So Yvonne said, well, look, this is how our citizenship schools are set up. He said, we have this grouping. We have zero to five. We got six to nine, nine to twelve. 12 to 15, and then it was like 16 to 18. Then you had your, I think after it went all the way up to 25, and then you had what they just referred to as community and elder responsibility. So he was showing us this video where a group of five-year-olds created a play and they were teaching it to their grandparents. And their grandparents had to act it out. And I'm just like, Yo, like what, what, what is happening? What? And he said, look, we understand that learning is always happening. Remember the Campesino farmers that Freddie taught were in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. So now they were saying that because learning is always happening, how can we create a structure where people can always plug into learning and actually those folks who are in those community schools, they now were part of the Lavalas movement, right? Which actually got Lula elected in Brazil. So, you know, when you see this space, or I mean, like a real tangible example of people saying learning is always happening, learning is dialogical, learning is connected, and it, everybody does it all the time. So, I think those models are really important because what we actually see historically that black schools that were started by black folks in the South had very similar responsibilities. The school was understood as a center of community, right? It was a place where people engaged, they engaged their community, they engaged each other. And remember those schools right after Reconstruction, or during Reconstruction, I should say, were largely burned down and replaced with a public school system. Yeah, That moment, I think, becomes important. And I think these are mm. tangible examples that we can look at historically and in, in the contemporary moment and say, look, you know, we, there's a, we, we're doing this all backwards. But Yvonne's piece around grades, I was like, damn, that's it. <laughs> like when he said, he said, look, we know that the brain doesn't function that way, right? <laughs> that, that's that, like that's not how that's not how humans learn. Yeah. I, I'll throw it to yeah. you, Kiss, but but just that image of burning down like the Reconstruction era models of school just really haunted me right now. I think we we have the image mm. of like the church burning down as the communal institution, and that history I think is more like favorable for the state. Uh, but the history of, of our schools being burned down really just like hurt me just right now, just thinking about it. Man, there's an excellent book by a guy named Christopher Spann, who I went to undergrad and grad school with. And Chris's book talks about Mississippi. In Mississippi, from the years of 1865 to about 1890, 
there was a public school started by black folks burned to the ground in every county. Mm. Right. So this so this thing around really putting that in real time and what that means, the place that is reflective of your liberation and sustainability is seen as such a deep threat to white supremacy that they burn it to the ground right? in every county as a sign of terror. Well, and then and and then the replacement. Right. Which is this, Mm. quote, universal system um, becomes pretty quickly, like we've already discussed, a site of carcerality. Um, exactly. And, and I think one of the main contradictions that I think Damon and I, we've talked about on the show and also just a lot in general is, so you, you had these schools that you were just talking about that were burned down, that were to some degree, I'd imagine more land-based because they were started by people from that mm-hmm. land to serve the needs of the communities in that land. And then we have this uh, kind of projection of that idea of serving the public on this, you know, national scale with a, you know, quote, universal education system, right? The idea is that this serves everybody and you have the fallacy of it serving everybody equally. And yet at the same time, you know, even that logic that isn't true is now seems so threatening that they have to dismantle that, right? So the Mm -hmm. replacement to the liberatory thing, because people have done so much work within it, uh, so much education that they've found little fugitive corners within schooling, mm-hmm. but also just because the idea of anything being public <laughs> is seen as a threat to power, mm-hmm. that the, the the more carceral version is still too threatening. Um, and and mm-hmm. so I'm I'm curious for you, having the knowledge of those other models, how do you even think about the idea of education serving the public and this idea of that mm-hmm. as a universal when we know that there's almost no public left <laughs> the people yeah, still exist yeah. but a, a, a commons barely exists in this country anymore and in many ways these horrible schools are the best thing we have <laughs> right, right. right. Of, exactly that, that yeah, was Eve's exactly. point of like yeah. there is this contradiction of liberation versus carcerality uh but within that contradiction there's another one of like yeah we have this carceral space but the rest of our social infrastructure is null and void uh so therefore yep. this is almost what the rest of our spaces are aspiring to if that makes sense yeah Yeah. And I really appreciate Eve kind of putting this out, right, where we talk about schools and dysfunction, right? And community folks are like, wait, there's a whole different operative space that this thing occupies, right? And there's a whole different operative space that we've used this building for. And when that's destroyed, you know, this idea of a public commons dwindles even further away. And I think back to your earlier point, this is where this fugitivity comes in. And this is a question I'm asking of my own self, right? Can we train enough folks fugitively to reignite the public commons? Or is this something too far gone, right? But I think what I've seen over the years is really being able to support folks in that fugitivity, right? Because that's real work. You are up against a a behemoth, right? What is available to replenish you? What is available to sustain you? This idea of a public commons gets reignited if more folks say, look, you know, we talk about schooling, you know, being quote unquote good. But what we really need to be confronting is schooling may be the problem. Mm. Right. And can we begin to engage? Because there's a deep contradiction 
in teaching, right? Teaching is one of the most political acts in one of the most depoliticized, apolitical Mm. institutions and structures. Mm. Because you can have good people who have a bunch of love in their heart who could still be participating in practices that dehumanize folks. Teaching has been chided, right, for being, quote unquote, too political. And then when we think about it in the broader terms of things, it's like, man, that's light, right? Just saying that young folks should have supplies, that's light, right? <laughs> walking, walking, out, walking out because the heat ain't on, that's what we should be doing anyway. Well, what does it mean to actually make a challenge to our condition mm. and using a practice that allows us to envision and build a new condition, mm. right? And I think that's a entirely different space, but it goes back to regeneration of a public commons or a space where people understand that as we contribute, we also can use. That comes, I think, in this current moment by way of supporting that fugitivity, right? Mm. And if we can make more of those fugitive spaces, we have the greater opportunity to, to reignite that public comment. So I always think about, uh, I have a mentor by the name of Gloria Lassen Billings who said this thing to me and I was just like, damn, I can't imagine being in a teacher training program like this. So she went to Lincoln University right outside of Philly. In her teacher training program, she had a professor. She said when she would walk into class, the first question they had to answer was, what have you done for the struggle today? The professor said, waking up is not an answer. You know, right? there, you know there's like, like five kids who are like, damn it, that was going to be my <laughs> That was exactly <laughs> what I had. Right, right exactly. Right? So, so, right. so he was already on it. He's like, uh-uh, don't give, me, don't give me that waking up. What have you done for the struggle today? And I was like, oh, <laughs> like that, that's a, so if well, I certainly trained, didn't do my homework. <laughs> right exactly exactly right or maybe so that is like, for the struggle because homework is a carceral tool and by rejecting <laughs> home, and this is a stretch exactly <laughs> and think about what it means to be trained like that mm-hmm. right because it because if you're trained like that then the questions that you ask are completely different yeah right and you reject a whole bunch of stuff that you just instantaneously say that's not going to work for my young bloods. Yeah. Like yeah. that's just not going to work. Yeah. And because it's not going to work, here's what we're going to do. I really appreciate you all asking this because this is the stuff that I'm asking of myself around how can we train folks up to enact in ways that are fugitive in getting folks what they need and asking different questions of, of the condition. Mm. I, I would love out of that to get some of your perspective on the organizing you or other educators are doing right now? What does that space look like? Mm. Because, I th- mm-hmm. you know, I think what you said was really poignant about education, teaching teachers being this very unique political space. Uh, and then even the, 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 the clapback that they get from power, I, you know, I think in our local context, CTU, obviously, as you know, I think it's almost easy to say one of the mightiest teaching unions mm-hmm. in the world. Uh, we're coming out of a school year where there was another, sh- we were forgetting now because of pandemic that we just came out of a strike, yeah. right? And it wasn't yeah. for, 
you know, pay raise type things. It was for very basic life necessities for students. Um, and so we had that strike, right? It was right. successful in its, in its ways. And then we had the, the pandemic coming. And before the schools closed, it was just such a, a moment, I think, for all of us who pay attention. The, the response was, oh, we're going to make sure that there's soap in all the bathrooms, right. <laughs> which means that that right. wasn't insured already, right? So teachers who exactly. just had to strike yeah. for, for however long to get very basic necessities and were seen as villainous, right? Like you come back a few months later and we have a global health crisis and the response is, oh, let's check on these soap dispensers, uh, was, was just so eye-opening. Um, so yeah, right. that would just be reflected on what you already said, but I want to get into... What is the fugitivity looking like? You, you mentioned that there's a network that has come together and emerged. I, you know, I've seen you in some like conferences and some spaces uh, right now in this world of also we are in movement time that is unlike any time. Right. Uh, how are radical educators organizing and what would you like to see in the mainstream conversation of, of uprising against racial justice? Because I think we just stop at put more money into schools. And right. I don't think that like accounts for everything we're saying in this conversation. Yep. So I'm part of the uh, Abolitionist Teaching Network. And the idea is how can folks share resources with each other? Going back to Vanessa Siddle Walker's book, right? How can we share resources with each other in this moment when there are no real good solutions, right? In terms of trying to engage folks in this virtual age, especially folks who have particular needs, particularly folks who have been historically excluded in these systems. So this, re this thing around resource sharing is really pushing me to understand mutual aid. Another thing is really kind of thinking about curriculum, right? So what are we actually starting to engage with folks? And now how are we thinking about time when we do these engagements? So my next door neighbor is a science teacher. And he was like, man, it's a ton of stuff that we can do but the system won't allow us to do it because of all these rules and constraints. So he was just like, look, man, I'm about to go up in the schoolhouse. I'm about to turn on my little video camera real quick. I'm going to do a couple of spots. Then he took that, what he did in the schoolhouse, brought it back to his house, then <laughs> created a whole different set of lessons, contacted every one of his students. I was like, okay, here's, here's how we do it. And he was just like, look, we can switch off. We can engage one day. You all can do the next day on your own by, by yourself time work. And then I can just check on the work and then we can regenerate the lessons. I'm like, man, dude, this dude is out here like putting a grind in a whole other space. Yeah. Right. And my thinking is, you know, what are the ways to support him? Right. In terms of mm. actually doing work in this way. I think uh, another thing that's happening we're seeing folks really start to organize around ethnic studies as part of curriculum. And, I, and interestingly enough, I'm starting to see more folks really engage in abolitionist curriculum at the K-12 level, which was surprising, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, Colleges also do this kind of thing around capitalism, right? So everybody has an abolition curriculum like two seconds. So like this summer, I probably looked at about six or seven abolition curriculums that were supposed to be engaged at the uh, level of higher ed, right? But what I'm really seeing is people being very creative around saying, look, abolition means the ending of the practices that dehumanize. What does that mean for science? What does that mean for math? What does that mean for social studies, English language arts? So 
I'm seeing more of that and I'm participating in that work through the Abolitionist Teaching Network and uh, another group of folks called the People's Education Movement. So these are spaces that I'm seeing people support that fugitivity and in some of the ethnic studies work in terms of really kind of bringing these stories to the fold and really kind of thinking about and moving on dissemination in terms of the sharing of resources. Just so, sending it by mail up and down the seaboard. That's the move. Exactly, right? I mean, like, look, and, and look at look at what's happening to the Postal Service, right? I mean, right. this whole thing. And, and, you know, just have you all noticed that we have never heard this point? The United States Postal Service, to this day, is still the largest employer of Black men. Mm-hmm. Well, it's almost it's almost like a pop culture thing, right? It's like you get a job with the right. postal service. It's a good job. It's a steady job. It has a you know, like that's that's the, the not a, like a panacea, but it's like a, a solid right. stability. Right. I mean, my grand my grandparents, my pops, his sister, my aunt. You know, they all came through. They all came through the PO, right? So this thing around really that organizing. What I've seen is like, how do people now support these movements? And then thinking about this movement moment as a site of curriculum, mm, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important point. And my worry is people will take this moment at, at, of unrest just as the flashpoint, in opposed to saying this is connected to a deep and broad history. And now our, our capacity to connect that to this deep and broad history enhances our capacity to now shift and move with the folks who are on the blocks, in the streets, and thinking about how to do or engage education entirely differently. And what we really see is that this is connected to a history, right? You know, we can look at the, the, the boycott. So Chicago, Chicago public schools got shut down by students in 63, 67, 68, and 72, mm. right? Wow. Literally shut down. Yeah. Not just kind of thinking about racial unrest as the flashpoint, but really thinking about it as a site of curriculum that's connected mm. to these other things. I think that's that to me, there's a lot of power in that in terms yeah. of, and that's what I see in terms of folks uh, moving and organizing in uh, education spaces in and outside of school. Mm. That's beautiful. I didn't know the uh, four shutdowns in like seven years. That's nuts. Yeah. And then, you know, you know, there were like like two kids who were not involved in any of the shutdowns. We were just like, this is the best snow day ever. This is <laughs> right, right. Yo, this is like, man, this is this is this is what's this is what's cracking. And yeah. actually, Dion, there's a, a historian at the University of Indiana named Dion Dance, who I actually went to school with. She documents all those shutdowns. Mm. So I think I have a new segment and it, it might be more in name than in practice because we have a little bit of time, but I want, I'm, it's coming from trying to be considerate of your time. And I'm calling it if we had more time. If we had a little more time. <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> what I was going to say is like, oh, I'm going to offer you. 
the, the like thoughts or questions that are lingering for me. We got about a little bit over, we almost got 15 minutes left, so we might actually be yeah. able to touch some of them. So the first thing that, that's been in my mind, uh, I thought about you when I first saw the story and I was trying to find her name while we were in conversation, but couldn't. But the mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the student in Michigan that was incarcerated for missing a, a Zoom class. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's just on my heart. So I just want to uplift. I don't know. Do you, you know her name? Or remember? Yeah, Grace. Grace. Yep. I just want to uplift her. And, the, and for folks to look up that story as like, that felt like the most hardcore example of yes. what we're talking about. It wasn't like being punished for a fight at school and you ended up in, in being incarcerated. You were being incarcerated because of school. Um, yep. so, that, so, so that was one thing I, I really wanted to uplift. Uh, second thing I wanted to kind of maybe poke at is I don't feel like we talk about higher education and the university enough when we try to have these radical conversations about education and schooling. It usually comes to the community space, the K through 12 space. Um, And I said like earlier, like school, as we know it, is training you to work, but there's also this space in between. It's really training you go to college to be able to work for a lot of people. And the idea of, of college or university is that it's this bureaucratic accreditation space to be valuable in in the capital market. And that is then attached with this inaccessibility and this debt thing. But we usually only talk about student loan debt and don't talk about the education that's happening in that space, I think, enough. And then the last, if we had enough time, me and Daniel have become more and more educators in doing this work. And I think our medium and our tool is dialogue as a political art form and educating on dialogue and like the mechanics of it, how power is um, embedded in all conversations. And something I realized two days ago is like the first thing school teaches you to do is to be quiet. Um, yep. and, and it takes away communication, verbal interaction. Uh, the thing that you get in trouble most is communicating with your friends, uh, which is where I think your humanity can actually be the most developed. So in the if we have more time, I was uplifting Grace, talking about the university, not just in terms of the student loan debt crisis, but how it is another way of oppressive schooling. Uh, and then lastly, talking uh, as a center of education that's usually deemed as like the worst thing in, in the school space. So yeah, whichever of yeah. that gumbo you want to pick out yeah, maybe, as we maybe. got about 12 minutes left. <laughs> I wish we had more time and shit. I think the thing around communication becomes important because this is something that I feel we can learn quite a bit from preschool teachers. Mm. Preschool teachers are always instructed around how to engage in communal learning. Right, a good friend of mine, Heather Duncan, long time uh, early you childhood got a lot educator. Of friends. You're probably man, friends. you know, like, look, I'm old, man. You know, shit. That's great coming in that goatee. <laughs> right, like saying, saying, man, look, I, I've been here for a minute, right? So they uh, so Heather always talks about the thing that we miss is education is generated from you know contact with older folks, and it's also generated with contact with peers. So now. How do we now support that contact with their peers, which is a learning space that goes undervalued? So if we think about as folks get older, how do we now start to support that peer learning? And one of the ways to do that is through communication. And that lesson dies when they get to third grade and they start getting tested. Now it's more regimented, sit in your rows, listen to this proctor, give out a test, eat these dry ass cookies and choke to death while you're taking a test. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, all, all of this. If there's, if there's one piece of the fight. Yeah. 
We got to yeah, get some oyster cookies. cookies. <laughs> <laughs> like, like get, get rid of the cookies. How about I know some that, milk in this that's drink? a reform. Like, it's a reformist reform. I acknowledge that. Good, but good, in right, the look, short term, man, <laughs> we, we, we can at least get some. Yeah, we can at least get something to drink. Right. That's a, that's a W. Let's take that. That's, one, it's right? not famous, Amos. It's infamous, Amos, for how dry those. That's right. Man. <laughs> and then the, the thing around thinking about higher ed, right, in terms of these spaces around what does it really mean? So I work with this department of folks who really think about this radically and saying, well, look, we now have to understand how we function in late stage capitalism. And in our function in late stage capitalism, what are we willing to reject? And what are, what are we willing to do in terms of access? And an example of this, right? So there's a woman named Nancy Cantor, who's the chancellor for the University of Rutgers Newark. And what she's done, she said, look, if you graduated from Rutgers schools, you go to Rutgers University, Newark for free. <laughs> she was just like, look, let's, let's make the pathway clear, right? And then the other, so she garnered a bunch of resources to do that. The other part of the resources was she got money, not only for folks who are currently incarcerated, but for folks who are returning home mm. to actually t- take classes at Rutgers for degree attainment, right? But like I said, degree attainment and late stage capital have all these contradictions. But I think this idea of interrupting who has knowledge, colleges can play a role in that in terms of shifting that narrative, Mm -hmm. in terms of thinking about Sister Grace in Detroit. One of the things that becomes important is recognizing how the carceral state works and really understanding what containment is. And I think, you know, when we go back to our black radical feminism, this is something that they've been telling us for a long time. The black body has been rationalized as the gratuitous site of punishment. Grace's situation is no different. She was viewed as criminal before she was viewed as human. She went to this predominantly white school. She had some interactions with folks at the schoolhouse. Her and her mom weren't necessarily getting along. And the only response to doing anything to address that issue is containment. The only solution we have is containment. We don't have anything that engages folks. We don't have anything that engages any process of transformation. We don't have anything that actually engages mental health. Now, that's available in the private sector for those very affluent white students, but we have no public mechanism by which to address those issues. And Grace's piece is emblematic of the criminality of the black body before its personhood. Mm. And that is the entire debate around schooling, right? Because these are spaces where not good things are happening but more so rationalized as where bad people are housed, right? And that, I think when we actually can address that and hit that point and start to rethink that, Mm -hmm. then we're forced to ask a very different question around the function of schools Mm -hmm. for the historically disenfranchised, in this case, being black and brown youth. Mm -hmm. As tragic and ridiculous as the responses of the state were in her case, I think we should understand that as this assumption of her criminality before her humanity. Mm. All right. So just I'm being a little mindful of time. I know you have to sit through a, a, or 
I won't say sit through. You have to participate in a department meeting. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, but I, I want to ask uh, two last questions that I think we're going to start mm-hmm. dusting off for this education suite, um, which is one, you know, there's all these highfalutin, big, abstract, or, or complex ideas that we just talked through. And then there's the reality for so many parents right now of stepping into this role of educator in a really different way, or at least into this role of schooling facilitator in a different way. Because mm-hmm, obviously mm-hmm. we learn from our parents a lot. Um, one, is there any support, advice, feedback, message that you'd want to give to parents who are in that role right now? And, and two, my last question is, is there a teacher that you had inside school or out that you want to just give a little shout out to? <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. To your earlier question, there CTU actually has quite a number of resources that folks can uh, plug into. There's also an organization called the Black Teacher Project that's doing quite a bit. Then there's also Rethinking Schools, which is a longtime uh, publication that's also providing some resources for parents and, and for, for parents. Yeah. And I think, and then. Uh, Another one locally, Raise Your Hand, Illinois, is also providing quite a few resources for parents. And I think my message to parents is, you know, there is no good solution right now. Everything is thrown up and it's the, it is tough right now. And I want to acknowledge that because I, I think in the material reality of things, we need to understand what a challenge this really is and how it is really putting a lot of stresses on families. But those resources are very important. And I think this idea of patience, grace, and mutual aid, Mm. right? So what can we learn from each other? What can we share with each other to address this situation? Then being patient in terms of grappling with some of these concepts, using our, our available resources, also in terms of this grace, right? In terms of just saying, you know, some days will be better than others. Our work makes for those better days, mm. right? And not, not just in this abstract sense, but in real time. So if we are consistent with what it is that we're trying to do, we'll actually and use those resources. We can actually make sense of this thing, but it's, it's tough right now. And I, I want to live in full recognition of those challenges. And then in terms of a teacher that I would want uh, to shout out, my third grade teacher, Miss Jordan, my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Dennis, and my fifth grade teacher, Miss Lester, who told me, look, the world wants to do something to you. Are you ready to prove them wrong? I was like, hey, I now 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 I get it. <laughs> right. Like, so that was why. So my first lesson in fugitivity was fifth grade, right? In Shout terms of Ms. like Lester really, the Fugitive. That's great. Man. So yeah, those are those are the folks that I would uh definitely want to shout out. Beautiful. That's that's a powerful place to end. Um, thank you so much, not just for this conversation, but all the work that you do. Um, I think one of the 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 things that we've leaned into is like not only outside of this space, but that this this medium, this form itself has power to be an educational tool. Um, and like in stepping into that responsibility, it's people like you that, that have really made that possible. So thank you not only for this, educating all the folks that are going to listen to this, uh, but also I think me and Daniel, you know, uh, personally, you, you yeah. have helped my thinking a lot. As I'm sitting here, I'm just paralleling all these conversations to 
abolition of police and prisons. And when people ask, what is your vision? Uh, it's usually a network of institutions that are in walking distance of someone's home that provide resources and community. And within that network of institutions, we have accountability measures, right? That accountability yep. needs to be embedded instead of this separate thing that happens somewhere else where bad people go. And in this conversation now, I'm paralleling that to education, right? Like we need a space that makes sure folks have housing, food, medicine, clothing, elder care. Um, and in those institutions in our community, that is where education is embedded. We learn how to take care of, of each other. Um, and, and just some of the ways that you were talking right now help me see that a little bit clearer of that's the vision we need to be working towards. So I just come from a place of humility and, and extreme gratitude for you, for your work, for your thinking and your liberatory spirit. Thank you so much. No, we I, man, I appreciate y'all fully, man. I truly, truly appreciate the work and how you all have been getting down and, and have been engaging in this space and getting this out to the people. Truly appreciate it. How can uh, folks find you and your work in the ways you want to be found? If you want to be found, if you want to just keep that fugitivity, we can we can move that direction right. as well. Well, I mean, it's it's super simple for me, right? So I'm I'm the local Luddite. So all I got is an email, <laughs> right? So, you know, folks can hit me up at MFS8837 at gmail.com and Mary. <laughs> right, look, look, look. And what it really is, it's look, funny, like, here's you made the, thing. the exact same joke last time. Like, here's, here's the thing, right? <laughs> the way that I set up, the way that I set up my email was to curse and then remember my address. So the address of the house that I grew up it's 8837, right? <laughs> so literally it's me saying, motherfucker, shit, oh, 8837. That is, <laughs> that is how I set up my email, like um, real talk. You were looking for your, ad uh, not an email address, <laughs> your actual address. <laughs> my actual address. This is for you. So, right, this is, this is like, so we talk about practicality oh, in the material world. Look no further than my email. Oh, thank you so much. I hope that your department meeting is excellent. Uh, and um, we'll be back on the line uh, continuing our education suite showcasing the folks reshaping the culture and classrooms of our city and world for the more equitable and creative much love to the people peace education, education.